Welcome to the Book Club Interview with your host, Scott Hollister, a show that empowers you to discover your best self through a deep understanding and review of books dedicated to self-improvement and business. All right, welcome to the Book Club Interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Today's guest is Chris Prefontaine. Chris, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Scott. Awesome. Thanks for being on today. So you have a new book you want to tell us about? Yeah, New Rules of Real Estate. I actually co-authored it with my um, son, Nick, and son-in-law, Zach. So pretty cool ad there compared to the last book a few years ago. And then uh, it's 24 leading experts um, sharing some, some cool advice. That's that the subtitle includes all of them. And, and, and what we did is over the last, man, seven years or so, buying and selling on our own, just the relationships that we forged. And as you probably gathered from the book, I, I'm open to all avenues of real estate. I'm not so naive to think we're the only game in town. So we do expose the reader to all different niches so they can get a taste, touch and feel, you know? Of course. Yeah. I love that. I've, I've, I've read a couple of different books in my past where they've kind of written a chapter about the best real estate advice ever. And I just love that because you get to pick the brains of some of the best out there. So yeah. love the format. Um, now before we get into that, so a little bit about your history, I, I was reading, um, in the real estate on your terms, kind of about your past and it sounded like you started in residential real estate as an agent and kind of created your own brokerage. Uh, if I got that right. Um, that was in the middle. So before that we built homes, mostly single family in the early nineties. And then I bought the brokerage somewhere around 94 or five. And then I ended up selling that ultimately to Coal Banker in 2000. Um, and then from there started doing our own deals, number one, and then coaching around, uh, United States and Canada. So all over North America, but that led to the lovely, uh, 2008 debacle as I call it. Yeah. Yep. That's interesting. So how did you get into the home building uh, business? You know, I, I grew up in a family business that had zero to do with real estate other than my father would buy his own build a build and or buy his own buildings to support the business. So I was around it for, uh, kind of peripheral. And then yep. um, he was looking to sell around 91 ish and asked if I wanted to stay on board and he wouldn't sell or did I want to do my own thing? And I had just started tinkering with a builder buddy of mine where I would market some pre-market, some uh, homes on vacant land and he'd build them. And so we, that started to take off for us. So I went and, and ran on that, on that track for a while. And that's how it started us in real estate. Oh, that's pretty cool. And did you get your license just to help out with the business or is it kind of? No, funny. Um, so as a builder, as you probably know, builders and realtors, not always like on the same page. So as yeah. a builder, I was definitely not, you know, I, I, it was nothing wrong, but I wasn't realtor friendly, right? I was just kind of all the side of the fence. And then uh, when things slowed down and we decided to pivot business-wise, I then went and got my license and became an agent for someone for, I think it was a year, whatever the requirement was. And then I did my own, you know, broker owner for, for a franchise. So no, it was not originally. I, the whole building route was unlicensed and I'm not licensed mm -hmm. now. It's just in between that, that I was a broker owner for a while. Now, what did you enjoy doing better, you know, building houses or being an agent at that time? Uh, I enjoyed the building and the deal structuring, which is all I do now to this day. And, and that was kind of a, you know, I, I liked the experience in a realtor. I, I think I learned a lot as far as uh, deal structure and things like that. But I also thought when I was a broker owner and no offense to, to agents out there, but it was literally like a adult daycare. Like it was just too hands on for me, not my style. 
Yeah, no, I've, I've heard that a few times about creating your own brokerage. Um, you got to be good at managing people and it, it starts to turn into more of a, a job than a business. It's definitely a tough, tough path, but was it, was it always the goal to sell that, build it and sell it or just kind of fall into that? It actually was. Uh, I said that I set a five-year goal and we nailed it within six months or so. But I remember people saying to me, well, you can't like, you have a franchise, you can't sell a business as a realtor. And we had not huge, we had like 14 agents and then my little team did like a hundred homes a year. So really what the Coal Banker, when they bought us was looking for market share. You know, they wanted mm -hmm. all those deals that we were doing and they wanted the few agents. So they sucked us into their local office. Nice. Was it a good feeling to sell that? Yeah, it was cool because uh, it, at the time it, it was a big, I won't say a windfall, but for me at that, at that age, I would say I would have been still in my late 20s. So that was a big deal to, to even ha go through a sale and a due diligence process and all that stuff. And then to obviously have the wire into the account, that was a neat experience. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Now, after that, what did you decide to do you know, leading up to the crash? Well, I mean, I was doing my own deals. So we were doing, um, at the time, the market was red hot. So we were doing uh, condominium conversions where we'd buy a four or a six, pretty common, sometimes a two um, unit building, um, get the condo docs done from the engineer, get the condo docs done from the attorney, and then sell off individual units. Those were selling like hotcakes back then. And then um, I was also coaching um, clients throughout US and Canada. And at that time, those were realtors. They, they weren't investing clients like we do now. And most of them were, were realtors, high-end, like million-dollar producers that just needed to become more efficient. And then um, we, when the crash happened, I'll, I'll give you one project. It was a six-unit building. Two or three units had sold. Like we bought the whole building for, I don't know, it was a half a million, put a couple hundred grand into it. But these units were selling all day long for like almost 200000 And then when the crash, we sold three. And then when the crash happened, the, literally, we couldn't sell them for a third. A third in that particular city. Um, that, that's a quite a crash. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it, it was crazy. Yeah. No, that's quite the, the real estate crash of 08. And um, I got to see it firsthand as well. And um, so going through that, you had a pretty uh, intimate story in the book. And I love the details that you have because I think for someone to, to learn, you know, during a time like that, something to test you, you know, um, that's the biggest takeaway. So, so what are your, you know, biggest lessons learned during that time? Well, uh, a couple of things. And I think what you said is important, by the way, I'll, I'll preface it with that because you, I, there's just too many things that can happen in real estate. And I see too, too many people and some really good quality people, but I see too, too many people that are trying to coach now or are coaching now and have never been through any cycles. And that can get scary if you're the student, because how are you going to navigate that if, and when it happens? So lessons that I, that I can look back on now would be exactly how, what, where, and why we, we do what we do now in our new business, which is do not sign personally on bank loans for the, for your real estate deals, in my opinion. So in other words, you're not taking out bank financing conventionally. There's just no reason to do that. And we can talk about how to do it instead. And then, um, uh, not borrowing from even from private investors, believe it or not. I don't, we don't borrow money to do deals. We do everything on terms. And that was all because of the lessons learned to your question in 08. That's what sparked all that. It was to the point where I almost said, all right, forget, forget real estate. Like I just need a sabbatical or a break or something. Instead we said, let's engine, let's re-engineer the thing. Let's re-engineer this entire process to not do all those things that stung us. Uh, over leveraged properties, bank loans, 20%, you know, just the conventional stuff that everybody thinks you have to do. Mm. 
Yeah, it was interesting. I, I I saw that in your book, you know, real estate on your terms. I'd love to dive into that. And I I can line it back up to why you do that now is from what you've learned. So it's just interesting to see, you know, make that connection and see mm. that. So what's your favorite type of deal structure, you know, post 08 that you like to well, for us now, I'll tell you what we like now, and then I'll tell you what I think the new person, because I've been, you know, I started fresh back in like 2012, 13. Um, the, the, the best deal for us now is a longer term owner financing deal, and I'll go even deeper niched. We don't, the owner financing means a lot of things to a lot of people. We look for free and clear properties so the owner has no debt. And then we look to structure a long term deal where most or all of that term has our monthly payment going to principal only. So no interest, principal mm-hmm. only. So you are literally becoming as close to recession resistant as you can. I'll never say recession proof, but this model is super recession resistant because every month you're paying down principal on these own financing deals. Uh, not, you're not just marking a property up to resell it, you're, you're pounding principal down. So over the course of even two years, let alone three, four or five, you're, you're just hammering that loan down. So I love those type of deals. Um, I'll give you some math, Scott. The, if you do an owner financing deal and you do at least a 48-month term and that house is around 200 grand or higher, you, with the three paydays we create, you just created a six-figure deal for yourself. One deal, six figures. So that's why I like those, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, for the new person, I, 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 and when I started, I liked the uh, lease purchase because we have $10 built into the agreement. That's your money up front. Um, there's no title transferring. It's just very simple, very risk averse, and uh, uh, no money down. And so that's super important for the new person that might be listening. Mm-hmm. So you're not taking title with that, but you are taking title with the owner financing, right? So you get an depreciation, yeah. all the tax benefits. Yeah, and the reason I said, I should have said the connect, why I said the second one is only $10 down. Well, the first one's no money down either, owner financing, but, when you put no money down with a seller, I've not once had a seller say, oh, great, let me come out of pocket for my transfer tax. You're not putting anything down. No, you got to. So we pay transfer tax if it's applicable in the particular state and any other fees they might have incurred as a seller in a normal transaction. We take care of those because we're not putting anything down. We're giving them a, a nice price. That's why they do it. But we're not putting any money down. So that's why I said when you knew if you don't have cash flow, you, you don't want to be grabbing a bunch of those deals and paying people's transfer tax, you can go grab a whole bunch of these purchases very easily. Mm-hmm. And some of the common, you know, questions I have definitely from, you know, more sophisticated and, uh, you know, sellers, if they own the property outright is, you know, that depreciation, let's say they owned it for a while. So, you know, if that's one of, you know, the conflicts that come up or the objections from the seller, how do you handle that one? Uh, as far as you said, uh, depreciation, yeah, the recapture for them is the seller. Well, I mean, I, I haven't got, believe it or not, a lot of sellers don't bring up um, the depreciation. What if they've got that thing depreciated way down for, you know, for a cost basis, then they actually prefer to have the terms, a lot of them, so that they can kind of kick the can down the, down the road or, or at least put these tax payments on an ongoing plan instead of getting whacked all at once. So I haven't got much pullback from that. What I found is that with the owner financing, um, whether it's ego or pride or what it is, most sellers want their price, period. And most sellers will go out on your term as long as you give them the price. So let me give you an example. Say you're a seller and you said, I want 300 grand for my house. Uh, I, if you'll go out four or five years or more, 
I don't mind paying a teeny bit over that. So you're going to get a premium on the property, especially if I'm paying principal pay down because, you know, picture it three or four months, four, four, five months maybe of payments. I just sucked up any premium I gave you. And now I'm, now I'm hammering down the, the, you know, the base principal. So all that to say, they, they like that. They feel like they're getting their price or more as long as they give us the term. We can do that. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. And it brings me back to one of my um, you know, mentors back in the day. He had this, this saying, and he probably heard it from way back, but he's like, he's like, you can either pay the price or you, know, you could choose the terms, but you can't have both. So yeah. is that kind of the same line? Yeah, it is. Like they'll say, yeah. um, I want a little money down. And so that is an objection we get, by the way. And mm -hmm. so we'll say, okay, great. But Scott, we usually don't pay money down and your full price. I can give you a price, which is more important. And if someone says, well, no, I need my cash now. I got to go you know, do something else with it, then we're not a fit. But if they are okay with, you know, foregoing some cash now until the end of the term, or in this case, over time, then that's great. It's a good fit for both parties to win-win. That's awesome. So do you pay a certain percentage over, you know, let's say the appraised amount. So that house is worth, you know, 200 today. Do you find yourself typically going a little bit over and paying that premium just to get the terms you want? No, good question. Not, not, not unless we have to, when we love the deal, but no, mm -hmm. typically not. Typically I'll go in and say something like this. Like we, we have a deal now that it's got extended several times. So what, what started as a four year deal is now grown to like a 21 year deal. But when we started, I said to him, uh, it was a seller who had liquidated his dad's estate. He had his own property left and he was ready to leave the state. We literally put the deal together in two days so he could leave. And I said to him, what do you think you would have got? I think he's on for like 219, low end house. What do you think you would have got if your realtor sold? They didn't, it's expired. But if they sold, by the time you got an offer and then haggled on price and then paid the realtor, what do you think you would have netted? He said, 183.9. I said, okay, that's what I'll pay you. So you didn't get that, but I'm going to pay you as if you did get that. So we try to, you know, let them talk themselves into that number. And so a 219 house in the market, we got for 183.9 owner financing. There's a ton of money in that deal. That's awesome. Now, are you mailing to those expired lists or what's, what's your favorite, you know, marking list that you like to purchase or? Okay. It depends on, yeah, this is good because it depends on what, like we're in different pockets around the country, right? We have our own deals in New England and then we have deals with students all around North America. So it just depends on what pocket that market's going through right now, or what stage that's going through. Example, if a market's red hot, like one of our DC students, are there going to be many for sale by owners? No, they're selling. So there might be some more, there might be expireds though. So that might be the focus for that market. If the market's flat, kind of just like no growth, like out in Pennsylvania, one of our students been that way since, you know, ever since like 2012, the same, it just doesn't change much where he is. All FISBOs and expireds are great. We don't mail as much as we'll have virtual assistants or our own team call. So we're usually doing phone work for that initial or someone is doing it for us. And that's why I said the virtual assistants. So it's the expireds, the FISBOs and the for rent by owners are a great, great source of leads in every market. It's awesome. So post crash to now, what have, you know, what's been your bread and butter for lead source and then how has it changed over the years? Uh, those three started and maintain our bread and butter. So FISBO expired for rent by owner. And then we will uh, now and again, if the leads in any given market are slower, you know, they're drying up a little bit, we may um, kind of go against our norm and spend a little money on a mailing to free and clear homes. Cause, it, cause as I alluded to earlier, those are great owner financing deals. And so those don't change. What changes is which one will focus on more or less if the market's up sideways or down. Mm. Interesting. No, I love that. I love the, the different options, you know? Um, 
So where did the passion come from, you know, to become a coach and, and why, you know, navigate from that? So you said you started with coaching real estate agents and yep. now you're coaching investors. Yeah. So we started um, buying and selling on terms and I, I don't think consciously there ever was a, a thought to let's start tomorrow coaching people. What happened was we live on an island, uh, Newport, Rhode Island is on a three town island. It's called the Quinnick Island. And on that island is a war college. So you have, you have Navy students there. Someone had heard about what I was doing for deals, said, look, I've done three tours to Afghanistan, I think it was. I'm going back to live in Ohio with my family to civilian life, and I want you to teach me. So I taught him. I mean, he was literally in my office, and then he referred me to some people. And long story short, within 12 months, we had all kinds of people coming to us saying, we, I want to learn this. Like, this is unique. Because of the nature of easy entry, you know, little to no money down, because of the no bank loans and no credit needed, I didn't have any after the crash, because of all that, it spread fast. And, and so we started coaching. And then that became a pretty core business where my son-in-law, Zach, and my son, Nick, and a great team around us um, grow that now all over North America. And I'll tell you that it's hard unless, you're, unless you've gone through coaching, um, it's, it's hard for people to understand, well, why would you take the time to do that? Well, two reasons. One, we're not about selling coaching or selling product. We do deals with our students. So that's a key differentiator in the marketplace. We actually get in the trenches and do deals and revenue share with them. So we have an inherent reason to, to be totally vested in their interest. And secondly, when you coach, you have to be sharp. Like your fingers on the pulse. You learn at a rapid pace because you're coaching. You, it's rewarding because you're learning at a rapid pace and helping someone else succeed. It's just a whole new level mentally and psychologically that, that you get to enjoy when you get to that coaching level. And our coaches, we have certified coaches now, they say it. They say, wow, it's improved my own business because you got to be sharp. You got to be on the cusp. Mm. And you said you worked with your family. So how has that you know, evolved over the years and who do you have on your staff now? Yeah, what's neat. Everyone says, well, what'd you do? Did you do like design a plan and like, you know, put everybody <laughs> in place? And I wish I could say it was, it did that, but it was even easier because it happened organically. Nick, my son, started uh, helping me very, very passively. He was a realtor and he was like, I got some time. And I said, well, I don't know this online stuff. Can you kind of like, when I get properties, can you post them to sell, to rent, to own buyers? And here's what you do. And I set him up to do that. And that was probably sometime at the end of 13. By the end of 14, he became full time. So he was my buyer specialist. And then a uh, non-family member came in as an assistant. And then around the end of 15, uh, Kayla, my daughter and Zach, my son-in-law, who's now COO, he's become a major part of the company. They were in the, um, he was a personal trainer and they were both bartenders because in our area with tourists, it's very lucrative. The lifestyle stinks, but you make really good cash. So they would five years into that and tired of it and at the end of 15 and said, is there any room in the company? I said, well, I mean, I don't know. There's no salaries. You can come in, we'll do deals and see how it goes. Well, they did. Zach actually very quickly um, by a year later had replaced me with our buying and, and handles all the buying now with sellers. You know, we go out and acquire properties. Caleb became back then before having kids, the general manager of everything we do. And it's just grown organically since then. Nobody kind of wants each other's roles. It works great. Uh, Kayla's backed off a little bit now that they, they just had their second child. Uh, so our second grandchild, but Zach's become, as I said, a major uh, role and recently became COO in the, in the company and coaches a lot of the, the high end people with me. That's cool. How's it working with family? Pretty cool. Yeah, it's great. I mean, people say, okay, come on now. How, how the heck do you make decisions? And is there conflict? I'll tell you, we, it's very simple when as a team, not me dictating it as a team, we came up with a mission 
and then five or six, now it's five values that we're going to operate on. So when the decision comes up, family or not, because we have a, a big team now growing, it's not anyone's opinion. There's five values. Does it align with the values in the mission? If not, it's not a go. And I'm talking about even students, Scott. We've said no to students who want to pay us if they didn't align with our values and our mission. And, and so that blows some people's minds. Like, why would you do that? Because we need to stay true to our mission and our values. And then so as a family, it's easy to make decisions that way. Nice. I love that. Send up your values and live them by them. Yep. Quality. Um, now I'd like to circle back certain, you know, you kind of piqued my interest. I love, I love seller finance deals. I think that's, you know, win-win if you can, you know, create the, the best deal terms for both parties. Right. I know it's hard to do, but in your, your, let's say percentage of deals, how many of those ones are you offering interest? You know, if you can't get that strike price, are you, um, are you, we just started offering interest just, just, just like this year, oh, last year, we're into a new year because we used it as a technique to take a four or five year principal only deal and say, look, Scott, if you'll extend it 10 years, 15 years, we'll add in four and a half percent interest. We did that on several. Um, so that four year deal that became a 21 year deal was because we called them up and said, Hey, I know you've been getting principal only We'll add the interest. But that literally was like the first one. And then we bought our office building, a little over a year ago and he wanted he was very conventional older gentleman very successful in real estate wanted 5.2 percent no it was actually 5.3 percent interest he actually advertised that so we bought the building i said well i can't i can't just do that but i understand his logic so what we did is we structured all principal up front for about nine months like we hammered principal down and then we amortized the balance at like a little under what he wanted, like 5.1. So we both won. We both felt like, okay, cool. I, I got a hammered down principle right away that I wouldn't even get over the course of three years on a conventional loan. And then he got his interest after that. So it, those are far and few between. We just started doing that. But if, if the deal's a killer deal, it's all math. We'll do it if we get the right term. Correct. Now in that deal structure, you said the four that turns into a 21. Are you, you know, with that four-year term, is that the balloon? And then you're calling back and saying, hey, and they've gotten principal. Would you like to extend it? Is that kind of how you'd stay in a, a short-term deal, longer term? Yeah, and that also has to be coupled with our exit, though. You said it perfectly, but let's say let's say my tenant buyer in the home in month forty is very successful and cashes the deal out. Well, obviously, I you know I, I didn't get to extend it, and that's great because the buyer wins too, and we move on. But in this particular case, the buyer was having a little bit of trouble. Instead of us saying you're out in the street, we said, well, let's see what we can do. We went back to the seller pushed the term way out, went back to the buyer and said, hey, good news, no stress, take your time. They were just ecstatic because they thought they were going to leave. So it just depends on both sides of the deal and what's going to be a win-win. Hmm. Well, that's amazing. So I've got a question. So if you can negotiate great terms, are you that adverse to signing personally on a loan or you know, with today's low interest rates and if you get a long you know, fixed rate loan with Fannie or Freddie, are you, are you taking that deal or are you just kind of no. off personally signing? No, I can tell you I, under no circumstances in, in, other than my personal residence, will I do that? And would I tell you my students to do it? I'd like under no circumstances. That's interesting. I, I love hearing different approaches, right? I think if, if you can, you know, just be a student of everything and learn everything is about financing and real estate and deals, you can kind of, you know, put together creative deals. You know, I, I love that. So it's just, I've never heard anybody say that, 
Yeah, know? well, it's personality too, right? So somebody, yeah. I, I know a ton of people on my podcast and friends that'll go, wow, money's cheap. I'll just go out and get whatever the maximum is that I can get on, on FHA loans or whatever the program might be. Great. But I can sleep better at night knowing that I'm not on those because if the market turns or something happens to the house or there's a lawsuit, doesn't matter what the headache is, those headaches happen in life and in real estate. And when those happen, the banks come in one place. They don't care what the market did. They don't care that you weren't responsible for the national market. They care about one thing, getting their money back. And the, whose signature's on there? You. So they're going to come to you. And now if you have a family, you just jeopardize all your family's assets. And in my opinion, that's not a good sleeping tool. <laughs> so I just don't do it. But <laughs> I, hey, if other people are okay with sleeping with that headache potentially happening, then that's good for them. But I've already been down that channel. So I've been down that road rather. So no more. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that's, that's lessons learned will, you know, shape your future. So absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. So are you, are you doing the seller financing to, to increase your rental portfolio? Or are you doing, you know, lease options and passing that deal forward as well? A um, your... little bit of a mix now, Scott. So we, um, we carry any, at any one time, 50 or 60 properties, not counting students. And in that portfolio, our uh, cash out dates with tenant buyers anywhere from one year to five years. Also in that portfolio is a small mix of say three, four and five unit, maybe six unit buildings, uh, two or three of them. Also in there are some singles where maybe we said, oh, we got an initial long, long term at the beginning. Let's rent it for a while. Then we'll do it. Then before we have to exit, we'll do a rent tone. So there's different concoctions in there. And then we'll take, sometimes we'll take a, a sandwich lease deal and we'll gain some rapport and respect and credibility from the seller. And then a year into say a three or four year term, we'll call them up and, and attempt to buy that subject to the existing financing or owner financing. So again, all kind of combinations that you can do with these types of deals, kind of to your point that once you understand it and you can navigate it, you can engineer almost anything. That's great. So you might if we take a deep dive in one of your uh, best deals of all time. Sure. Um, of all times, a toughie. Um, yeah. Let's see, I, I can tell you, I can do, go over the one I said earlier, just because it's top of mind. I mean, it's not all time. I mean, we just did one with a student in California that it's a $200,000 deal. We just did a video on it. So on YouTube, but I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. I just know the killer on a financing deal you put together. Um, I'll, do a, I'll do a simple lower end one. Let's continue the story of the one where he said he was on for two nineteen nine, and he said he would have got 183.9, so we did that. Okay, so mm -hmm. we, we start at 183.9 with no money down, and we set up $923 monthly principal payments for 48 months. Now we turn around, and we put a tenant buyer in there, would say, I think it was like between 15 and 20 grand down. That's what we call payday number one. That's actually on the low side. Payday mm -hmm. number two is the difference between our 923 outgo to the sell of a principal and the incoming from the tenant buyer of 1500 now, there's an insurance payment in there too, but just gross numbers. Then you take that spread over over two years, uh, sorry, four years, and that's what we call payday two. So that spread is what, like uh, 500 and change. And then payday three, when you cash that out at the end of the 48 months, is all of the principal pay down that you made for four years at 923 a month, plus the markup in the price. In this case, we went to two and a quarter. If you do the numbers on all three of those paydays I just gave you, that's the deal that I said is a six figure. I think it comes to like $127,000 on a 183.9 house, which for most conventional people go, I don't get it. Like I don't, it's because of the principal pay down. Mm -hmm. 
so that's not the the all time. That's just a really cool owner financing six figure deal that's somewhat normal for how we do them. Yeah, I mean, if you're getting rid of that, you know, amortization schedule, I mean that that principal pay down goes fast. Yeah, it's killer. Um, no, it's a unique way. I've I've heard of like kind of the sand the sandwich lease lease option before. Um, that's super creative. So, who's your typical? you know, end buyers is someone that doesn't have perfect credit yet or is trying to, you know, own a home while they fix certain things and, you know, get better income? Um, okay. Typical would be a large percentage do need some credit repair. Could have been from death, divorce, you know, job change, legitimate things, life events. Um, a better buyer, that's the most percentage, but a better buyer and one we're getting better at attracting is that self-employed kind of like a sideline buyer that knows they're not bankable right now, but has a down payment and has decent credit, but perhaps they're not reporting all their income, you know, the self-employed, those are great buyers. So all they need is some time to season their income. They already have the down payment. They already have the credit. Those are the fantastic buyers. They're true buyers. They're not tenants that think someday they want to buy is a big difference. Mm -hmm. And they're just doing the cash out refinance, you know, first day they can typically. Yeah, they'll go a couple of years, you know, seasoning, as you know, it's going to take probably a couple of years depending on the program, but so they'll go two or three years and they'll get a conventional loan. Um, mm-hmm. And again, that's nice because that's typically the person that I, I, 10 years ago, you could do stated income or maybe 12 years ago now. And they, the stated income programs exist now, but they're super expensive. If you can find them, they're like eight and 9%. So most conventional buyers won't do that. So they're going to the bank, they hadn't bought in 10 years and they, they have a rude awakening. I got 50 grand, I'm ready to buy a house but I can't do state income anymore. What happened? So then now they need two years of seasoning. So they're great. They'll plop the 50 down to you instead as the investor that goes in your pocket. And then you just let them season out their, their time frame or the new, their new job or whatever they have to season. And then um, they get a conventional loan. No problem at the end of that. Great. So those payments to you, are they paying principal and interest or is it just principal? Uh, neither. Good question. When they, when a tenant buyer goes in a house, even though we have principal pay down, there, when we do a, a lease, a rent home with them, um, they are simply making a lease payment until they get their mortgage, or else there's no incentive for them to go get a mortgage. So they don't gotcha. get credit for principal. Nice. And it, uh, it fills a space. It's kind of like, you know, the hard money question or, you know, expensive financing or something. It fills, uh, you know, a space, it has a need. So there's no question you've got people that, and I could give you a story after story, but on the buyer side of things, you got people that literally thought because of whatever happened in their life event, they were done. Like they couldn't buy a house again, like in tears. So when, when we show them this pathway, it's such a super win. And then the seller usually same scenario, they're looking for the best scenario from, from us. So usually you come out of that transaction, unlike a lot of the conventional deals where people are clawing at each other, you come out of that transaction saying, okay, uh, as an investor, I did well. Uh, buyer just made their, their, their whole, you know, generations I just changed in their family by helping them do this. And then the sellers uh, are super happy too because they get what they want out of the deal. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, you're paid in the direct, you know, um, amount of problems that you solve. Yep. I just butchered Absolutely. that quote, but. <laughs> <laughs> I know where you're going. Yeah, yeah, yep. But no, that's great. Uh, Chris, you want to tell us more about um, you know, the books you've written and website, best podcast to reach you on, you said you had. And um, we can 
yeah um i'm a big and thank you for bringing it up i'm a, I'm a big believer in free so you can just go to smartrealestatecoach.com as a free webinar if you want to deal with listening to me for another 55 minutes it's pretty content rich you can't you know go learn how to make a million dollars in an hour but it'll point you in the right direction for you to do some more due diligence our youtube channel which is just you know just put smart real estate coach in youtube there's um deal structure videos galore and there i think there's over 100 so you could literally go look at different deals for free and learn some of the nuances that uh, that go on. Uh, our show that you mentioned is smartrealestatecoachpodcast.com. And I don't know, um, Scott, if you want, I have that the new rules book I could actually give to your listeners. And I'm, I'm saying the hard copy, we ship it out if they just say they heard you and I on your show. If you want me to, to give you that link, I'm happy to do that. You can put it in the show notes. Yeah, sounds great, Chris. You, uh, any, any links that you have? And you had a couple of good ones in there earlier too. So we'll get an email going and I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. Cool. That sounds great. So we will offer, we'll put it in the show notes and we'll offer all the, uh, all your listeners that, that book will ship. It's not one of those get a free book, but oh yeah, put your credit card in for shipping. We'll, we'll, we'll do it at our cost. Thanks so much for listening to this show of the book club interview with your host, Scott Hollister. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on the Book Club Interview.